the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll begin today with big news out of the University of Michigan, a $490 million settlement with the survivors of Dr. Robert Anderson's sexual abuse. We're going to talk with Sam Dodge, a higher ed reporter with MLive and the Ann Arbor News, about that agreement and the scandal that ended Mark Schlissel's tenure as the university's president over the weekend. And we'll talk with the new president of the Detroit City Council about her plans for leadership in the coming years. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So some days, you come into the studio, and you have a plan for the show ahead, and it's interrupted by news, breaking news. That's what happened today uh, for us here at Detroit Today. We had planned to open the show with a conversation about the scandal that has enveloped former President Mark Schlissel at the University of Michigan. But then this morning, the university announced that after months and months of negotiations with survivors of the sexual abuse of Dr. Robert Anderson, who worked at the university for decades, they have reached a settlement with those survivors after a lot of very tense negotiations and really a roadblock that had prevented resolution uh, of this issue. $490 million is the dollar amount that the university and the survivors have settled on. Uh, if you are at all familiar with higher education here in Michigan and the issues that surround higher education, you know that this is not the first major public university in our state to have to deal with this issue. Of course, Larry Nasser was a doctor at Michigan State University uh, who also abused many, many people over many, many decades. And that university had to grapple with the way to make those survivors whole uh, as well. It's enough to make you sit and scratch your head a bit about what is going on and what has been going on in higher ed in our state for a really long time. Uh, but the news today, I think, is a really welcome development for those survivors, many of whom have been very vocal uh, on campus in, in recent months and, and years, and who have been very frustrated by the university's inability or unwillingness to come to terms with all of that. So that is where we want to begin the conversation today with the news of this settlement and how it fits into the narrative of the other controversies that have developed at the University of Michigan, which, by the way, is my alma mater and a place that I still have uh, pretty deep associations with. Uh, I want to welcome someone to the conversation, though, who has been following all of this really closely and knows a lot about uh, what is going on in Ann Arbor. Samuel Dodge is a higher education reporter for MLive and the Ann Arbor News. Sam, welcome to Detroit Today. It's great to be with you. Uh, I don't need coffee this morning. It seems like the news woke me all up. <laughs> I was going to say, I can remember in newsrooms when uh, you would get up in the morning and something like this would happen, and you're off and running. It's like you've had a full day already, uh, and it is not 10 o'clock. Um, I, I do want to start with the news of this settlement, which I think catches some of us by surprise. I think um, there were there were there were mumblings, I suppose, about the idea that uh, now that Mark Schlissel, who has been president since 2014, uh, was out of uh, out of that position, that a settlement would be easier to reach. A lot of people believed that he was one of the roadblocks to coming to terms with, uh, with these survivors. I don't know that anyone thought it would be a matter of days, though, before uh, that happened, that it would still be something that, that might take a bit. Uh, give us a sense of 
how surprised you are by this news, uh, and then talk about the settlement itself and uh, how big a step forward this is. Well, I'm relatively surprised that it developed this quickly. Um, there were rumblings, uh, really, once Mark Schlissel was fired for cause, that uh, this was going to start uh, picking up, but I, I didn't imagine it would be less than a week. Um, I talked to a lot of survivors and, and attorneys uh, at the end of last year, kind of, you know, really with no end in sight on this mediation. And one of the, one of the reasons, you know, there, you know, there aren't a lot of people at the University of Michigan who, who knew about Dr. Anderson. There mm-hmm. wasn't a whole lot of, you know, reason to, you know, to kind of break this case through. And one parallel they always would bring up was, look, the thing that broke the Larry Nasser uh, scandal and the mediation at MSU, what really broke that open was when uh, Larry Nasser was incarcerated. Uh, when he was actually convicted, there was an actual data point for the, the plaintiff's attorneys to say, look, this is, you know, the, uh, federal courts have weighed in and or courts have weighed in and said this is where this, uh, you know, negotiation is going to go. Let's be on the right side of the legal system and, and get these uh, survivors their settlement. With Michigan, with Mark Schlissel's removal, that was the major development that I think really broke this thing open. So if you had asked me in December, I would have said, no way this is going to get settled in January. Once Schlissel got fired, yeah, the, the rumbling picked up fast and furious. Yeah. And what was it about Mark Schlissel and his tenure as president that represented uh, a, a roadblock in resolving uh, this 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 dispute between the university uh, and these survivors, uh, we should remind listeners uh, that John Vaughn, a former U of M football player, actually from my era at the university, uh, has been essentially camping out on the lawn in front of Mark Schlissel's uh, house in Ann Arbor and the presidential uh, residence in, in, in Ann Arbor, uh, demanding that, uh, that he... Uh, acquiesce to to the idea of some sort of settlement with with survivors. What was it about Mark Schlissel that made him uh, sort of the target and the focus, I guess, of of these survivors and and the roadblock to to figuring out how to how to settle all of this? Well, frankly, this isn't this is more kind of scuttlebutt around uh, the Ann Arbor and university community. But Mark Schlissel's personality was not the guy to go out and shake John Vaughn's hand and. That in itself was a just, you know, it really just crept up and kept becoming an issue because mm-hmm. it seems just so heartless at the time. But really, if you talk to survivors, um, a lot of the things that they'll really relay is that, yes, Mark Swissel is an issue, but they also have an issue with several board of regents. Not, you know, not going to name them here. It's a bunch of, you know, uh, confidential kind of conversations I've had with survivors, but there are multiple regents that, uh, you know, survivors have had issues with. So Schlissel was almost kind of the embodiment of a lot of uh, kind of callous uh, treatment of survivors. And when you when you get outside of the Anderson case in particular, and you look at his handling of the Martin Silbert uh, situation, mm-hmm. um, there were three computer science engineering professors that um, had sexual misconduct. Uh, there were, you know, multiple of these situations that emerged over Mark Schlissel's tenure. And then you have Admittedly, an inappropriate relationship. It's not in the same extremity as sexual harassment from by Martin Silbert or nearly the the sex abuse by Robert Anderson. But that, you know, Mark Schlissel really was symbolic of, you know, from the top down, there was this hypocrisy from the University of Michigan that we're going to handle things, you know, internally and we're going to have people at the top of the totem pole be you know, a part of this sexual misconduct culture. So I think that's that was the most symbolic thing. And that's what really wedged this thing loose. But really, there's a more comprehensive complaint uh, when you hear from survivors saying, like, it's really a systemic issue. And it's not just one person like Mark Schlissel. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Sam Dodge. He's a higher education reporter for MLive and the Ann Arbor News. We're talking about the breaking news out of the University of Michigan this morning, a $490 million settlement reached between the university and the survivors of Dr. Robert Anderson, a physician who treated many, many athletes uh, at the university over many decades uh, and is reported to have sexually abused 
uh, at least dozens, if not hundreds, of, of those athletes. There are many people who have come forward to talk about the things that Dr. Robert Anderson did when he uh, examined them. Uh, we're also going to talk in a minute uh, a little more about the dismissal of President Mark Schlissel, who was, up until this weekend, the president at the University of Michigan. The Board of Regents let him go uh, after an independent investigation revealed that he was having uh, a relationship, an inappropriate relationship, with uh, subordinate. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, give us a call and let us know what you think of the settlement uh, between the university and survivors of Dr. Robert Anderson. That $490 million uh, price tag, do you think that's enough uh, to make those survivors whole? Do you think maybe the university owes something more? Uh, how do you think of the way that the university has handled this scandal, uh, not the first in in Michigan in recent years, uh, with regard to a doctor at a prominent public university. Um, also, give us a call and let us know what you think of the firing of Mark Schlissel over the weekend. Uh, what do you know about the the the, ind- the independent investigation that the regents uh, performed? What did you think of what they found? Did you think it justified letting Mark Schlissel go? Uh, after about seven years as president at the university. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, put comments there, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Sam, I, I want to ask you if you've heard from any of the survivors. I know this this news just broke this morning. But I wonder what they're making of this settlement. Uh, I, I know that at Michigan State University, um, there were lots of different opinions among survivors about the settlement that uh, that the university ultimately reached. There were lots of opinions about other things that they thought perhaps the, the university ought to be doing for survivors. I, I, I don't imagine that that'll be terribly different here in uh, in, ca- in the case of Ann Arbor. But, but I wonder if you've heard from anyone quite yet about what they think. So just real quick, I talked to John Vaughn and Chuck Christian, two of the major football players that have been more the prominent survivors, mm-hmm. and they had just gotten off a flight, so they were foggy in the head, and they were just <laughs> starting to process it themselves. Um, I think uh, generally they're happy, but they're still trying to sift through a lot of the, the details of the $490 million settlement. Uh, one aspect that um, I, I have talked to them uh, before about is what the average payment is going to be compared to the Nasser case. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the, the total money, $490 million, that's $460 million split amongst the survivors, and then an extra $30 million in reserve to address future claims. The Nasser settlement was about $500 million, and, and so you look at that on its own and you say, okay, those are two equal ones. But the Anderson survivors have pointed out that they have twice the amount of plaintiffs, uh, more than twice the amount of plaintiffs mm-hmm. than the Nasser uh, case. And so the average payment is going to be about roughly half. And one of the aspects there, there are a lot of, quite frankly, black male athletes mm-hmm. that are a part of this uh, litigation and yes. this mediation. And they're, I've talked to them. I've talked to um, uh, Dr. Jennifer Freed, who's a sexual violence expert, who's actually on another uh, lawsuit uh, looking for institutional reforms at the University of Michigan. And they've talked about how sexual violence against uh, black men is not taken as seriously as sexual violence against white women. Mm. And so that's something that I think will be an interesting reaction to see going forward, whether or not survivors are really satisfied with um, with this settlement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I also I also wonder if you can talk just a little about these survivors who, as you point out, you've gotten to know. Uh, this is a different case and a different um, – it has a different context because of who the victims are here from what went on at, at Michigan State. And I, I feel like it's been it's, – it has been difficult to, to draw as much attention to, uh, both because of the kind of external uh, – the external forces that, that don't – Perhaps value uh, black males and our our issues and um, uh, our our victimhood in the same way that they do for white women, but also because 
inside the, the African American community. It's it's there is a, a a strain, I think, of um, embarrassment and shame uh, that that accompanies something like this. That also makes it more difficult to get people to talk frankly about what happened and to stand up and and demand that something be done. I I, I would imagine that you have seen both of those dynamics up close in this in this issue. Yes. Um, and just before I go any further, uh, the, the first people to come to the defense of the of the Anderson survivors are the Nasser survivors themselves. Yes. Renee Gonchar and the MSU gymnasts. You know, these are survivors that have been with John Vaughn, Chuck Christian at all these protests. So this isn't like a wedge that's being drawn between, you know, the two parties. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I, you know, I'll, I'll talk to John Vaughn and I'll, you know, in, in his camper right in front of Mark Swissel's house. And I talked to Chuck Christian, who's like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, I'm 5'7", myself, so I'm always <laughs> cranking my head up to, to look at him. Yeah. And you just, it really breaks a lot of misconceptions about sexual abuse when you realize someone that physically imposing um, could be abused by, and you look at Dr. Anderson, you know, not a physically imposing person, and you start realizing that it really is a power dynamic in, in a lot of these cases. And I think one thing that this case can really do is it can break a lot of those misconceptions about sexual abuse. And people like John Vaughn and Chuck Christian, they've been very open about talking about that and how that's been a fight that they've had to deal with in their own black community and their own kind of athlete community. Strong, powerful men don't necessarily just fight their way out of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to... You know, sometimes it's hard to break that misconception, but you know, they they've been doing they've been doing God's work trying to get get that word out. Yeah, yeah. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Uh, call and tell us what you think of the news this morning that the University of Michigan has reached a settlement with the survivors of Dr. Robert Anderson. Four hundred ninety million dollars is uh, the number that they've agreed on. Is that enough? Is that too little? Is it uh, maybe perhaps you think it's too much? Uh, also, give us a sense of what else you think the university needs to do uh, to, to make these survivors whole and, of course, to prevent the things that Dr. Robert Anderson did from happening again to people in the future. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Sam, I do want to talk about uh, President Schlissel or former President Schlissel and his dismissal uh, over the weekend. Another big shock at, at the university. I don't know that many people knew that the regents had begun even an independent investigation uh, about the president, let alone had reached the conclusion that uh, that that what they found uh, would uh, would inspire them to fire him. Uh, Schlissel was already planning to resign as as president and had worked out a deal with the regents that would have kept him at the university uh, teaching and and running uh, research and and labs and things like that. Um, I wonder what you make of this this development, um, which which really changes the picture, I think, for his future, but also changes the picture for leadership uh, at the university. Well, I think one of the one of the interesting things about uh, the Slissel firing, it's kind of the worst kept secret around Ann Arbor that he didn't really vibe with the community, uh, that there are a lot of different parts of the university that really didn't feel like he had their best interests in mind. You can talk to faculty. They had a no-confidence vote. Several student protests against him. Obviously, the John Vaughn protests in front. And then there's been some great reporting about, uh, you know, that there was tension with the regents and um, and Mark Schlissel. So really, everywhere, it, it seemed like there was almost, they were almost waiting for something like this to happen to justify getting rid of him sooner. Hmm. Um, one thing I found interesting about the actual uh, separation was he very clearly broke a policy that he introduced in July while he was having this inappropriate relationship. The policy is um, no supervisors can have a relationship with subordinates, you know, just like zero tolerance. That's that's the law or that's the policy. Mm -hmm. But that's not what the regents wrote in their letter saying this is why we're getting rid of you. They said that his conduct and comportment uh, was not 
consistent with promoting the dignity, reputation, and academic excellence of the university. That is a way broader um, condemnation. Um, and after talking with attorneys about this and whether or not they were able to fire him for cause, um, that was kind of a they, they said that's the better legal strategy because at the time where the university is dealing with all this sexual misconduct and reforming it, having someone at the top of the, the, the totem pole commit this really like really just, you know, kind of hurts his case to be able to kind of litigate for some extra compensation. So there's that social piece. There's some cautious optimism about Mary Sue Coleman because she's a more personable uh, personality, but she also was around when Martin Filbert uh, was able to do all of his uh, sexual harassment as provost, and he was in a high position then. So there's cautious optimism about the future of uh, reforming sexual misconduct on campus. And and uh, so, I, I mean, I, I, of course, know Mary Sue Coleman and remember her as president. I also remember the circumstances under which she left the job, and there was real tension with the Board of Regents then. I mean, that th- that was the the impetus for that transition from Coleman uh, to Schlissel. So I guess I was a little surprised to, to see the regents turn back to her at this point to, to come in and, and at least serve as interim president. Uh, talk about what the, the expectation, I suppose, is uh, for her in that role and, uh, and why they went back to her. Now, th- this is something that's also happened before in the, in the university's history, um, where mm-hmm. they've gone to a former president to, to at least sit in the seat while they, while they found a new one. But, uh, but talk about Mary Sue Coleman and what, they, what the outlook for the regents would be in terms of what she might do. I think um, you get two advantages from Mary Sue Coleman sticking around. One is between her and Marsh Lissell, the university's endowment has grown a ton mm-hmm. over the last two decades. So at the very least, you're able to kind of stabilize the financial bottom line of the university. And two, she's not going to fall into the same traps that Marsh Lissell did by rubbing people the wrong way with a, with a kind of a callous personality. Um, she's a much more personable person. Yes. If if she was living at the South University uh, president's house with John Vaughn in front, she at the very least would have gone out and, you know, shook his hand and, you know, created Give a, him a cup of coffee or something. Right. Yeah. Right. There'd be a little bit more of a connection and a little bit more of an image that the university is working through legal claims. And so they're not going to be able to say everything. But, you know, we are trying to talk with survivors in this instance. So I think those are two things that the regents were probably thinking, like this is a smiley face that we can put on a bad situation. Um, But as we talked about, there's been tension before. Uh, There was a lot of things with the athletic department that people disagreed uh, about um, her handling of of those issues. Um, There's, you know, she over, she was, you know, she oversaw a lot of issues with uh, sexual misconduct that really cropped up more and more during the Schlissel administration. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just regarding kind of she's she's only going to be interim till at least this summer. And then they're hopefully the regents are going to, you know, look for someone else. I think that's their hope. Um, but, um, you know, if she's going to stay longer than the summer, then I think uh, there's some really cautious optimism that, uh, she, you know, whether or not she's actually going to change a lot of the cultural issues that cropped up during the social era. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sam Dodge, higher education reporter for MLive and the Ann Arbor News. It was great to have you here to explain all the things that are happening at the University of Michigan to our listeners. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk with new Detroit City Council President Mary Sheffield about her plans for leadership in the future in Detroit's legislative branch. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. 
And as always, thanks for tuning in. We had a lot of change in last year's municipal elections here in Detroit, and that was especially true on city council, which saw a huge turnover of its membership not a full decade after it had seen another huge upheaval in its membership. City Council has also been rocked by corruption probes and criminal charges in recent months and years. And this City Council will, of course, have six new members and only three incumbents returning. So who will be in charge? Who will lead the city's legislative branch into the future? We learned recently that the president of the City Council will be Mary Sheffield, who represents the east side of Detroit uh, and has been on the council now, I believe, for two terms. Uh, Mary Sheffield, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Yes, it's great to have you back here. Let's start with congratulations. Uh, I was I was a little surprised to see the news <laughs> that uh, you were elected city council president. I had always heard that you were not interested in that role. <laughs> so let's start with you talking about uh, what made you decide to to try to become the city council president this term. Well, you know, I've served for eight years on council, and I've learned a lot. Um, I've served on various committees, um, except for two. Um, I've served under the leadership of city council president. I started off as a regular member, then became the pro tem, um, and really learned and gleaned a lot from our former council president on leadership and really how to conduct efficient city council meetings. Uh, when I heard that she was no longer going to be uh, running for council and that she was retiring, I thought it was a good opportunity for me to step up in the midst of a lot that has been happening on the city council, as you mentioned, with corruption and scandals and just really trying to maintain and build upon the reputation um, that that Brenda Jones had uh, set forth for city council. We have six new members uh, that were going to be on council, so I feel like we needed someone who kind of had some institutional um, knowledge. Uh, to really lead this council. And I thought it was a good challenge, not just for me, but um, also just what I believe I can bring from a leadership standpoint. And so I changed my mind and thought it would be a good idea to run. And my colleagues um, entrusted me to continue to lead us forward on city council. And I'm just looking forward to uh, what I believe this council can do. I think that we unfortunately have had a, a very dark, dark cloud um, over city council, but I'm looking forward to kind of restoring the faith in city council and the respect in council. We do a lot of work, a lot of great work, and we play an integral role uh, in the revitalization of this city. And I want that to be the narrative of the work that we do, uh, the hard hours that we spend down here at the council building and the, the good sound legislation that we pass. I want that to be the story instead of stories of other things. So mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to the challenge. I'm looking forward to all of the the perspectives and ideas that the various council members have as we move forward uh, and move in Detroit forward. Yeah. So so I, I do want to talk about a number of those issues that, that, that you referenced there, but I, I wonder if you if the change on council, the number of seats that turned over and the number of new members that we'll have was one of the things that inspired you to, to, to change your mind about uh, running for, for, for council president. I mean, there, there's going to be a really different dynamic, and there will be a lot of folks who, um, who have a, lot, a, steep, uh, you know, a steep learning curve uh, to figure out yeah. how to serve Detroiters uh, on the city council. Was that one of the things that figured into your calculations? A little bit, most definitely. I mean, you know, no matter how many, how much experience you have, I think, you know, city government is one of those things where you really have to be entrenched in it. You have to be here to really learn it. And there is a huge learning curve. I mean, the last two weeks um, have been an eye-opening experience just for me um, as the city council president. Um, and the new members, right? So my primary, fo primary focus right now has been just making sure that the new council members are um, adjusting and transitioning effortlessly and easily as possible um, into these new positions. So, I mean, with six new members, there's a huge learning curve. We also have a lot of institutional knowledge within some of our le legislative policy division here in the city council. We're losing a lot of people that have been here and provided guidance to council. So I just think having someone who had been here uh, was important as we continue to lead the city forward. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I do want to talk about your tenure so far on council, which I think it has stood out uh, among council members. Um, you have taken a really progressive approach to many of the issues in the city and to the legislation. Uh, and at times when when you needed to, you have really stood up to uh, some of the things that Mayor Mike Duggan has decided that uh, that he wanted to do. So so as we go forward here in your the beginning of your third term on council and with you as president, uh, give us an idea of some of the things that you think are are top priorities in terms of policy and approach, uh, you know, as the city continues to change. And uh, of course, as we have a lot more money right now to, to, to address some of our, some of our problems, what, what's on your mind uh, that, that the council should be really focused on? Well, I know that collectively I've heard from a lot of members that, you know, job creation and responsible contracting, affordable housing, and just economic growth in general is important. And we want to continue the momentum that we're seeing in our city. And so how we get there, I think we all have various perspectives and ideas of what that looks like as it relates to equity and inclusion. But I think we all have a common goal, of course, moving Detroit forward. Uh, I'm going to never shy away from standing on my core values and belief um, in, of, of equity and inclusion. And if that sometimes counters what the administration is proposal, I think there's a way, proposing, excuse me, I think there's a way that you can challenge, which we are supposed to do as the legislative branch, um, we can challenge, right, in a way that's not adversarial, in a way that doesn't cause, you know, just unnecessary drama, right, that brings that, that, that idea of here, here's, you know, here's another circus that we used to have in the past with council. And so um, I believe that we are going to have healthy discourse, healthy dialogue, be able to challenge the administration um, and make sure that things that are coming before council actually create tangible results for Detroiters um, as we continue to move forward in our, in our city. Yeah. Um, I, I'm talking with Mary Sheffield, the new president of the Detroit City Council, talking about her uh, agenda as uh, she starts her third term, her first as president, and the things that uh, need to be addressed here in the city of Detroit. We'd love to hear from you as well. What questions do you have for new Detroit City Council President Mary Sheffield? How do you think the city of Detroit can become a better place for all of us to live and work and play. Uh, what do you hope politicians in the city will do to improve the quality of life for people who live here, especially? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, let's start today with Gene in Detroit. Gene, what's on your mind? Oh, good morning, Stephen. Good, good morning, you. Madam President. I'd like to ask you, uh, why not utilize the nuisance abatement repair to own ordinance to compensate many of the citizens who are overtaxed on their properties, particularly the ones who lost their properties through tax foreclosure. Hmm. So, so Gene, I guess just to, to, to be clear, what you're suggesting is that the fines that the city could collect through that nuisance ordinance from people who are not keeping up their properties could be then redirected to the people who were overtaxed and, and who lost their homes. Is that what you're suggesting? Uh, that and the fact that there are many properties uh, that are in the land bank inventory that are sound and repairable and could be used to compensate uh, many of the victims of overtaxation. Right, right. Uh, Gene, really appreciate the call and the question. Uh, Mary, uh, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, I actually would like to respond, and I'm, and I'm glad he mentioned that because I've done a lot of work on the issue of overassessment in 2019. Um, myself, along with the Coalition for Property Tax Justice, released about a 45-page report on recommendations to solve the issue. Uh, in, in that report, not only did we talk about direct compensation, we also talked about in-kind services like 
home repair grants or using the land bank to provide free homes or grant assistance to rehab homes for individuals. So we definitely considered that. Unfortunately, uh, the previous council was not able to collectively come up with a solution. And so we are prioritizing that actually with this new council. We have a form uh, that is taking place, a virtual form that I would love to invite your listeners to that will take place this Saturday. Um, from 10.30 a.m. to 1 p.m., where we have all the elected officials on city council are invited. We're going to have breakout rooms. We're going to go over some of the proposed recommendations that were in that report, some of the recommendations that the administration has put forward previously uh, in their resolution that did not pass before council, and kind of just vote and see where people stand on the issue as far as remedies to the issue of overassessment. So I appreciate the caller for calling in, and I, I failed to mention that this actually is a top priority for me as well, is addressing the issue of overassessment. I mean, there's been a lot of different remedies. I've heard, you know, offering tax credits to future tax bills and the amount that individuals were overassessed. Um, I've heard direct compensation. We've talked about home repair grants and land bank homes. So we just have to really come together collectively and figure out what is the best option. Or maybe do we just offer a menu of options and let Detroiters who were impacted decide? So I can tell you that this council um, has all really expressed interest in this issue, uh, and we plan on taking it up for sure at this forum this Saturday and then collectively moving forward as well. Yeah. I, I also want to remind listeners that you sponsored a set of policy proposals that you call the People's Bills uh, last term. Um, I, I wonder if you can update uh, listeners on what those are and where they stand. Yeah, wow. We've done an amazing job, not just myself, but I, I think it was a collaborative effort with community organizations and leaders and my colleagues. I mean, we passed pretty much all of the people's bills. We still have some pending. Um, right to counsel is one that we're currently working on now. Um, that deals with uh, giving uh, free legal assistance to our indigent families and residents um, so that they are not um, faced with eviction. Um, And so we actually have an ordinance that is um, drafted now, ready to go. We're just having some issues with the source of funding. But things like affordable housing was approved, um, which creates um, an ordinance that sets aside all new housing Um, Rental housing has to be uh, 20% affordable. 20% of the units have to be affordable. We've passed the Housing Trust Fund, which is a fund set aside solely for our very low-income residents in Detroit. And when I say low-income, I'm referencing individuals whose AMI are at 50% and below which we've, uh, we know it really is the greatest need for housing in Detroit. So we were able to accomplish that. We also were able to accomplish um, the Homeowners Property Tax Assistance Ordinance, which was a part of the People's Bills, which really allow individuals to have easy access and create a more streamlined process for the Homeowners Property Tax Program, which is an exemption on your property taxes if you are below the poverty level. Uh, We also passed uh, the community input over government surveillance ordinance, Mm -hmm. um, which was a part of the bills, which deals with, you know, making sure that council is properly informed and allows community the opportunity to have the say-so on government surveillance that is placed throughout the city of Detroit. Um, We also um, were able to get the Neighborhood Improvement Fund form, which was a part of the Detroit Pistons moving to Detroit. So all of the income tax from the players are set aside into a fund that can only be used um, outside of the downtown area, only in our neighborhood. So that fund was approved and money has been allocated to it. Um, And things like the 51% local hiring ordinance that I had been working on is still pending. We're still looking at ways to implement that. Um, But the majority of the people's bills have been passed, but we also have been adding. I mean, you know, there's a lot of issues that face Detroiters, and we want to continue to address those issues and elevate the voices um, of those who are crying out for help. And so we've added things to the people's bills as well, too. Um, the residential parking for Detroiters was passed. That was a part of the people's bills. Um, that gives Detroiters um, a discount on their $40 tar- parking ticket <laughs> if you pay it within five days, right. uh, which was a huge issue for a lot of people. Um, so myself and my council president were able to, to get that passed as well, too. So that was just a couple of them. Um, and again, we have a lot of great proposals and ordinances that we're looking forward to, to move forward coming this year. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with new Detroit City Council President Mary Sheffield. 
We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Denise in Detroit, Joanne in Detroit, Kenneth in Midtown. We'll hear from you, as always, uh, if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I'm talking right now with Mary Sheffield, who is the new president of the Detroit City Council. We're talking about what's on her mind, what's on her agenda for this next term on council. We want to hear from you about what you think council ought to be doing and focusing on. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can go to social media as well, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Mary, I want to start uh, this part of the conversation with a question from Anthony on social media. He asks about DDOT. Uh, Of course, we've had some real issues and challenges with uh, DDOT, partially because of the pandemic, but also because uh, of, of, I I think, mismanagement of of our, our transit system here in the city. Uh, right before the elections last year, I had Mayor Mike Duggan on the program, and I asked him what his biggest failure was uh, as mayor, and he said it was DDOT, that uh, the, the the problems there he, he had not been able to solve. He hadn't been able to come up with, with uh, ways to make it better uh, for people. I wonder what you uh, make of the current state of DDOT and what you think council can do uh, to make it run more effectively for Detroiters? Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. And I can tell you that that is a constant um, call that we get to council all the time about the need to improve and add additional funding to DDOT. Um, I'm a huge supporter in public transportation and believe that we do need to increase funding towards DDOT. And so that is something that I will be lo- looking at and focusing on. In fact, I just reached out to um an organization that handles under CDAD that does uh, DDOT uh, transportation and and really organizing around the issue just to get a better understanding of the specific needs that people are requesting. And so, um, yeah, I hope, I wholeheartedly support uh, an increase in the in the funding for DDOT and looking forward to those conversations as we move forward in the budget season, which will start uh, around sometime in March, mm-hmm. early March. Yeah. Uh, of course, we also have a number of uh, questions about the corruption scandals that have occupied uh, council members' time uh, in, in recent months. Uh, I wonder what you make of those and what you make of the responsibility, perhaps, of the president or the ability of the president uh, to push things in a different direction. Is that part of the job uh, as president to try to set a tone uh, that, that is zero tolerance for the kind of corruption that, that we're seeing right now? Most definitely. Most definitely. I think it is a part of the president and colleagues to set a tone and to be an example um, that we are held to a certain standard, um, that integrity and decorum and civility and effectiveness should be the norm with any democratically elected body. Um, And I plan on leading that that way. Um, You know, it's unfortunate when someone um, is is, uh, investigated or some type of scandal comes out, we all take a, a hit to be quite honest with you. I mean, I've been in rooms and conversations where um, the finger is pointed at all council members when one person um, is accused. Um, and so it doesn't do any of us um, any any good um, as far as advancing um, forward the reputation of the, and the work that city council does. And so I plan on leading with integrity, make, making sure also that council members have the appropriate uh, training around ethics, which you should and should not do, and making sure that that is easily available for council members to understand, especially the new members who are coming on board as well. Um, but it's very important to me, um, and I think that as a leader that I will continue to stand firm, that it is no nonsense, zero tolerance, and that my colleagues also embrace that, that mindset um, as we move forward and lead um, in Detroit. Do we need an ethics overhaul in Detroit? One of the candidates for city council 
this last uh, cycle, Mike Elrick, who ran in the fourth district, I believe, um, said that that we should we should do this differently. Um, uh, new requirements for financial disclosures, for instance, was one of the things that that, that he talked about. Is, do you feel like we need to revisit the rules uh, as it pertains to council members? I, I don't necessarily know if the rules need to be I'm sorry, to to be changed. Um, I do think that there needs to be adequate training on the current rules in place. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, you can't get enough of, right, of making sure you understand what you should and should not be doing. Um, so I think just creating an, an environment where um, council members, elected officials have the appropriate training around ethics, um, I think is important as it relates to um, moving forward and, and what, what elected officials should and should not be doing. Uh, okay, we're going to go to the phones here. Let's start with Joanne in Detroit. Joanne, what's on your mind? Uh, yes, good morning. Hi, go ahead. Um, I'm a resident of District 5. Good morning, President Sheffield. Good morning. Um, and uh, my concern is this. The very unequal development going around in the city of Detroit, I the, the fact that um, in my neighborhood council, President Sheffield knows that a community partner of the land bank had a few people sign non-disclosure agreements, and then they planned this big development for my block and purposely excluded uh, me and other impact residents. And then yet this city council, the, excuse me, the last city council voted eight to zero for this development. So I don't know how you can say you're for equity when that underlying process was so inequitable. And from the budget meeting last night, it was real clear that a huge part of the budget goes to the city's priorities. And I was waiting for a planning study in my neighborhood for seven years since 2015 and we kept being told oh we don't have money for the planning study you know and i now i see it's just not true it was a matter of priorities so this administration is the one i fault the most so joanne i planned in secret and yet this mayor campaign saying let's build detroit's future together so i have a real problem with this council talking about equity issues joanne i want to give i want to give a bunch of racial tension I want to give the council president a chance to to answer. I don't mean mean to cut you off, but uh, I think I get the point of what you're saying. That and I, I want to broaden your your inquiry here. Uh, this tension over development, over developments in neighborhoods, and who benefits from those developments is is a very common concern of Detroit. It's not just uh, not just Joanne who has I think a very specific concern in her neighborhood. Mary, can you talk about the ways in which Council deals with these things, and uh, you know the, the the rest of the city government. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, just takes me back to the time where we had um, very um, public discussion around community benefits. Um, what is the appropriate threshold that actually tri- triggers these binding agreements between the city and developers? Um, it's a conversation that I think we still need to continue to have. I think that we are nowhere where we should be um, as it relates to community engagement. I mean, we've made some progress, don't get me wrong, but I think we have a lot a lot ways to go, a lot more ways to go. Um, but I think when developers come to the table, I mean, council has to just do its job at making sure that we're um, requiring that certain community benefits are met, that we're continuing to advocate for the needs of that community. Um, me, and, me and Joanne agree on Probably, probably mostly everything. You know, it's just that one project that we did not see eye to eye on. And I'm going to continue to work with Joanne around the issues of equity and inclusion, which I, I stand firm on my record uh, of supporting that here in our great city. So um, we did revisit the Community of Benefits Ordinance last year um, with the previous council. There were some small changes made to that ordinance, but I know there is a desire for some of the new council members to open it up again um, and see if there's a way to continue to strengthen what that ordinance is and how it directly impacts both developers and communities um, as relates to uh, equity and inclusion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Joanne, thanks very much for the call uh, and the question. Uh, let's go to Denise in Detroit. Denise, I've only got about a minute left, but uh, I want to get you in here. Go ahead. Thanks very much for the call. <laughs> Denise, you probably need to turn your radio down, too. <laughs> uh, let's go to Denise in 
Are you there, Denise? Uh, yes, I'm here. Yeah, I've only got a minute left, but uh, but go ahead. Oh, yeah, I just wanted to say congratulations to the new council members, uh, to uh, Mary Sheffield as president, and just hopefully um, it'll be a good year and no more corruption within the council, and hopefully everything is all good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I appreciate that. Uh, appreciate that call, Denise. Uh, okay, Mary Sheffield, uh, I really want to thank you for uh, coming on and talking with our listeners about uh, your new post and uh, your plans. Also, again, congratulations. I know uh, that your father and your grandfather, both of whom have uh, spent uh, years and years, decades here serving the city, are really proud of uh, what you've accomplished. And uh, okay. we really look forward to, to seeing what you'll do as our president. So thanks very much for being here. I appreciate you, and I will keep you posted and looking forward to coming on in the future. Yes, absolutely. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with author Anna Sale about her book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, a practical, profound guide to talking about the things we'd rather not discuss. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>